Father God, we would ask you to meet us now in this part of our gathered worship and uh, speak to us. We want to be moving more and more to places of trust and faith and love for you, appreciation of what you have done for us, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. And, and we would ask right now that the, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, instruct us, convict us, encourage us. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is good to be gathered together. We are uh, able to uh, have a few more folks with us in here on a Sunday morning, and it's just cool uh, to see more and more people coming out to join us here. And uh, as we dive into a study that we began last Sunday, a study called Beginnings, uh, we want to, let me just encourage you to bring a Bible, or if you prefer to read on your phone, as many people do these days, uh, I would encourage you to go to Genesis, because that's where we'll be diving in. And it's, it'll be easier for you to kind of follow what we're talking about this morning if you have that open and are able to look at the text that we're going to be studying together. As I said, our series is called Beginnings. It's a study of the first five books of the Old Testament, wherein God makes a people and a nation and a kingdom for himself. And these five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, which literally means the five scrolls, the first five books of the Old Testament. These books were predominantly written by Moses himself. Now, we know that Moses used available sources of information to him, especially for things that happened long before his time. Things like creation, story of Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and so. Uh, there were sources, no doubt some of them were probably oral uh, sources, Others perhaps written. We know, for example, Genesis 5 verse 1 refers to a book of the generations of Adam. So apparently Moses had available to him a source called the book of the generations of Adam. It had some information about Adam that Moses perhaps otherwise would not have had. We also know that in the book of Deuteronomy, it records the death of Moses. Obviously, Moses did not write about his own death, so some editor, some contributor inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, wrote about this death, this important event in the life of God's people, and uh, that became part of what we call the Pentateuch. We know in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek. The word translated in many translations is humble. He was very humble, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now, we hope that Moses didn't write that uh, about himself. Uh, otherwise, it would seem to call into question <laughs> just how humble he really was. But uh, the fact of the matter is, probably an editor of some sort, again, moved upon and guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, made that reflection uh, about Moses himself. But Having said all of that, the fact is that Moses wrote the bulk of the five books that we're going to be studying. And of course, he was under the inspiration, as I've said over and over, the inspiration and direction of God's spirit. And the first book of the Pentateuch, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the book we call Genesis. It's a book of beginnings. We looked last week at Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. And we saw that the message of Genesis 1 and 2 challenged the prevailing worldview way back then, 
some 3,500 or so, uh, you know, years ago when Genesis uh, was most likely written. And it still challenges the prevailing view with regards to God and who he is and how things got here. And just as importantly, why we are here, human beings, it challenges the prevailing worldview then and now. Now, this morning, we're going to continue on in this book, and we're going to look at chapters 3 and just kind of dabble a little bit in chap- up to chapter 5. And I want to survey two scenes with you in some depth, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and the story of Cain and Abel. And that's why I said a moment ago, be helpful to you probably to have your tool, whatever you use to read Scripture um, there, there's actually something called a Bible. It's a book. It's got printed words in it. Uh, some people use those. Uh, I still use mine uh, when I'm reading. Uh, I, I can't really get away from that. It's a, a habit developed over the years. But, but I do know a lot of people read and even mark in their you know, smartphone, uh, whatever version it is that you read. But it will help you to follow along. Now, what we're going to see in these two stories is the theme. And it's a, st- a theme actually that carries right on into the stories that follow, namely the flood and the Tower of Babel. And the theme is sad. Uh, the theme is really talking about a downward spiral of the human race into sin and into rebellion against God. And what we're going to see also is God's response to that sinful action Uh, on the part of human beings. God's response is, in fact, quite a surprising one. So let's dive in. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading at verse 15. This is the word of God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Two things I want to notice for starters here. There's two things that Adam is told to do. He's told to work it. That's connected to that ruling and subduing and having dominion over. And he's also told to keep it. That has to do, that's translated in some versions as guarding. And here's what's interesting, at least to me. That first command of working it is actually a kingly role right? God is giving Adam and Eve together as they work together a kingly role over the creation. Uh, I said last week, it's good to be king. You know, kings enjoy so many privileges. Well, one of the things in that culture long, long ago that a king occupied, only the king was, the king was the representative of God to his people. Well, here Adam and Eve are representatives of God. They're vice regents and rulers. This is an important role, a significant role, a meaningful job that God has given to them. Now, there's also another job which will unfold actually in weeks to come. And that's this idea of keeping or guarding. They're put into the garden to keep and to guard. This is actually a priestly role. And so God has given them a kingly role, ruling and subduing, but he's also given them a priestly role of guarding, of keeping the garden. Now understand, uh, in this text, God also just created a prohibition, and in doing so, he gives Adam and Eve a choice. They have to choose. Choose whether or not God is trustworthy. 
They have to choose whether or not God is going to be obeyed by them. They have to choose whether God will be God in their lives or not. And God, uh, with this prohibition, is allowing Adam and Eve to choose to be in community with him or, in fact, reject that community that he is offering to them. It's a choice that they will have to make. Now, we continue reading, and in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And right away, if, if, you're, if you're like me, I'm reading that and I'm going, whoa, wait a minute. Who's this character? <laughs> Who's the serpent? Where did this individual come from? This thing, this, this creature. And why is this creature evil? How, how did that happen? And to be honest with you, the only answer we have to that at this point is we don't know. We don't actually know at this point in the story uh, who this serpent is, where he came from, how he became evil. Those questions aren't answered, not in the text that we're reading. Now, later, much, much, much later, this serpent is identified as Satan in Romans chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 12. But, but here, we're not given that information. So just put a big question mark over that. The, the early readers of this text would have had that question mark there. Who exactly is this? Uh, what we notice immediately is that this serpent is indeed crafty. That's an understatement. The serpent asks a question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And we just read God's command just a second ago. Did God say they could not eat from any tree in the garden? You tell me, did he? No, no, he didn't say that. In fact, God said they could eat from every, every tree in the garden, except for one. That's what God actually said. God said they could eat from every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That word knowledge there is interesting because just because it's sort of a, it's a particular word that often is associated with experiential knowledge. I know something because I've experienced something, okay? That's sort of the idea there in that word. Uh, and just note, the serpent's misquote is of sizable proportion. Would you agree? Uh, the serpent is attempting to plant a seed of doubt in the woman's mind. He wants her to doubt the goodness of God. He wants her to question whether God really has her best interests at heart. He wants her to think that if she obeys God fully, she's going to miss out on something, something good, something she can grasp hold of on her own. And so if she wants to experience life to the fullest, she is just going to have to take things into her own hands and decide for herself what is right or what is good or what is best. And, and this is important to note, the decision to sin always starts with these kinds of thoughts. It always does. Somewhere there is doubt about whether God has my best interests at heart. And when I begin to question that, I will then go my own path and do my own thing because I think that will make me happier or more fulfilled or more satisfied or something. Now, Look at uh, verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit 
of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the woman corrects the serpent, it's good, but notice the inaccuracy in her account of what God actually said. Neither shall you touch it. That's interesting. Tremper Longman in his book, How to Read Genesis, a book that I've thoroughly enjoyed reading, uh, he points out that Eve is the world's first legalist. Uh, A legalist is someone who makes up laws that God did not command. And God never said, neither shall you touch it. That was something that she added in her understanding. So already, you see, in her mind, she's making God a little more restrictive than he really is. And she's drawing lines where God does not draw lines. And she's making him a little unreasonable here so that, you see, disobeying him seems a little more justifiable. God's a little unreasonable, you see. Now notice something else. The evil one will almost always strike where we are most vulnerable. According to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, who was present when God originally gave the commandment concerning the tree? Who was present? Just Adam. Yeah, it was just Adam. Uh, And so presumably, where does Eve have to get her information about what God uh, had actually said? She gets it from, from Adam, of course. So ladies, question. How many of you have ever known a man to have communication difficulties? <laughs> to be just a little bit short on details. Any, any ladies here ever experienced that? <laughs> How was your day, honey? It was fine. <laughs> Enough said. Yeah. So it seems the serpent goes after the one who was not directly present to hear exactly what God had said. Now, I'm reading between the lines here. I'm, I'm giving you information I don't actually know, but, but I, I suspect that's possible. I do. Now, no, notice something else. As Eve is engaged in this process of dealing with temptation, this, I do observe, she does not confer with anyone. She doesn't talk to Adam. Uh, and I would just observe that when we're playing with temptation, we generally for prefer, don't we, when temptations are especially interesting to us to deal with them on our own, in the secret. We don't ask for counsel. We're not looking for advice. And and when we act this way, we make ourselves, I think, infinitely more vulnerable. She doesn't talk to God. She doesn't talk to her husband, to Adam. She moves out on her own here. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise or knowledgeable, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Wow. So Adam was right there with her the whole time. Does it strike anybody here that uh, Adam was a little passive in this situation? Wow. Shouldn't Adam have said something? Uh, Remember, he's been put in the garden to work it and keep it or guard it. And Adam is doing a lousy job of both at this point. Adam should have expelled the serpent from the garden, I suspect. He could have done that. He had been given authority from God who has all authority. Adam could have said, get out of the garden, serpent. But he doesn't do that. Uh, He doesn't report the incident to God or, or bring God into this equation. Instead, he chooses Eve over God. Something that the apostle Paul, so many centuries later, talked about 
human beings doing, we choose the creature over the creator. Now, verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their eyes are in fact open. That's what Satan said would happen. That's what they wanted. Uh, But what a nightmare they saw. An incredible nightmare. They looked at each other now and the beauty of the image of God, what we talked about last week, the Imago Dei, the beauty of their community, the oneness that they had with God and with each other is now horribly twisted and marred. It doesn't look the same anymore. None of it. Now, when they look at each other, they want to hide. Now, when they look at each other, there's a sense of guilt and shame. Something awful happened to the human, uh, to human nature in that moment. And the theological name for that is depravity. Depravity is what happened. You hear people today say things like, and I'm sure you've heard this, you know, that I believe in the basic goodness of human beings. Well, that's interesting. The basic goodness of human beings. I want to say that is not what the Bible teaches the basic goodness of human beings. Christians believe that God made human beings. We believe that human beings are important, that human beings have dignity, even a, a certain nobility because of who they are, whose image uh, they are made, in which they are made. Uh, we, we believe that human beings therefore matter immensely to God and must matter therefore to us. Uh, We know that it's true that human beings will often do good things. You don't have to be a Christian to do something, to help someone, to do something good. In fact, non-Christians can sometimes, uh, in certain instances, do things better than Christians do. We, We see this. There's evidence of this all around us. But we also believe as Christians that human beings are not morally neutral agents. Even the good things a human being does is often prompted from from some core place of self-centeredness. And uh, Deepak Chopra wrote an article many years ago, and he talks about how human beings have been involved in what he called tribal warfare since the beginning of recorded time. Where does tribal warfare come from? Me against you, my family against your family, my tribe against your tribe, my nation against your nation, my party against your party, right? Uh, Deepak Chopra asked the question, why can't we transcend tribal warfare? And of course, the Bible tells us why. We know why. We know there is evil in the world and there is evil in me. When Adam and Eve sinned, something happened, something snapped, something broke in human nature. And it was no longer fundamentally righteous or good or truthful. It was depraved. In fact, the correct term really is totally depraved. And you see this in the life of every human being, young and old, rich and poor, male or female, educated, uneducated. It's just part of who we are. Would to God we could educate ourselves out of this, but we can't. This is why children disobey parents and children won't share and children hit and spit and bite and lie. And it's why adults shade the truth and exaggerate and cheat and are never really satisfied and are chiefly self-centered. 
Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, wrote in a book called The Spirit of Disciplines. He said, depravity is a spiritual condition that involves our readiness to harm others or at least let harm come to them if that will help us reach our goals of security, ego gratification, or the satisfaction of our deep desires. I think he's right. That's, that's at the heart of what depravity is about. So like glass is predisposed to shatter and nitroglycerin is predisposed to explode, we are predisposed to do wrong whenever the conditions are right. And theologically, uh, that human predisposition is called depravity. And depravity affects all parts of us. That's what we mean by total depravity. Uh, it's not just our behavior, something we do. It could be something we choose not to do. It's part of our thought life. It's part of our feelings. That's every aspect of a human being is affected by this thing of depravity. That's what we mean by total depravity. And the worst part of this, we cannot fix our problem of depravity. I don't care how many self-help books you've read, you will not educate yourself out of the problem you have of being depraved. And so you see Adam and Eve now, because of their rebellion to God, they've tainted, they are now tainted by sin in all their parts. And they know it. They know it. That's precisely why they sow fig leaves together. That's precisely why they now hide. They know something's broken, something's wrong. And now they are alienated first from themselves and then from each other and then from God and, and then their work and, and then from even the creation. And verse 8 tells us that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We're going to see uh, again in the Pentateuch this, this phrase of walking, in particular the idea of walking together. It's a picture of community. So when God is walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, this is a picture of the community that God means to have with Adam and Eve and their posterity. It's a community of spending time together and intimate relationship and having conversations about things that are of great significance and just enjoying each other's company. It's a picture of community. But the picture here is God is walking and Adam and Eve are doing what? They're hiding. They're not walking anymore. You see, sin has destroyed their desire for community with God. But God, to our amazement, comes to the garden and is walking in the garden and is actually pursuing relationship with Adam and Eve. And so God calls out to the man, where are you? Now, obvious, obviously, that's a question that he didn't need to ask. He, he knows exactly where Adam is. Uh, but understand, God is inviting Adam. He's inviting relationship just the way he does with you and me still today. He's inviting Adam to move in his direction. He's inviting Adam to freely confess and disclose his sin, come out of the bushes, right? So that the relationship can be restored. This is the beginning of amazing grace, friends. Right here, amazing grace. Now, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, that's a new word. 
the word afraid. Uh, There had never been this kind of fear before between Adam and Eve and God, but now fear is in the picture. This is the first mention of fear in the Bible. And God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam, at this point, kind of carefully reflects on the importance of taking personal responsibility for his actions. And he summons up all the courage he could possibly muster. And he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The one you gave me, God, the one whose idea was yours, God, that's who caused this to happen. She did it. And so now blaming enters the experience of Adam and Eve and the human race. Adam blames God and Eve, and Eve goes on to blame the serpent. And this is a skill that every human being hones to almost near perfection, all to our own destruction. See, it's a refusal to look at ourselves and see what we did or do or about to do and call it what it is, blatant rebellion against Almighty God. And to blame it on him or her or this institution or that institution. It's an unwillingness to own what's going on in our own hearts. And then God promises judgment. He he, uh He pronounces judgment. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. He tells Adam and Eve that what was to have been just sheer joy, nothing but joy, bearing children, working the earth and producing a product from that, being a husband and wife in intimate community together, sheer joy. These things that were originally nothing but satisfaction and fulfillment for them. Now they are tragically broken and they become fraught with difficulty and all kinds of heartache, and all kinds of disappointment. And God says to Eve, in pain you shall bring forth children. That's new. And God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Or some versions translate it, shall be for your husband. And that word desire is so interesting, we we come across it again in our next story. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it's, the, it's what sin desires to do with Cain. It desires to dominate him and control him. Well, Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. She will desire to dominate him and control him, but he shall rule over you. That's a war being talked about right there. And that's new on the landscape. Now, some Christians think that husbands ruling over their wives was part of God's original plan, especially men think this. But uh, this notion of ruling over was never a part of God's plan. It wasn't. Notice this is part of the curse. It's part of what comes as a result of sin. This is one of uh, the, the things that Jesus actually comes to redeem us from, this battle of the sexes that has gone on since day one right up to the present. Strife between men and women, husbands and wives. It goes on to this, way, to this day as a result of the sin in us and the sin in the world. The amazing oneness that we looked at last week, oneness with God, oneness with each other, The community that God wanted us to share with him, it's now badly broken and disfigured, and it has been ever since. The the point is simply that the, the destruction and degradation 
of the fall, it, it, it's hard to sufficiently describe it. It's what's responsible for all the brokenness in us and in our country today and around the world. It's what's behind every war. Uh, it, it, the destruction that we've just read about and heard described is so deeply disturbing, you, you almost can't find words really to adequately describe it. Let's keep reading. God next speaks to Adam and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Wow, more destruction. Because of you in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Once upon a time, your work in the soil would have produced a directly uh, corresponding result. And it'd be like, wow, a one seed and look what comes up. And it doesn't work that way anymore. Not in any of our efforts, in any of our work. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. It's a picture of hard, difficult work with disappointing results. And it's going to be that way, God says, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now death enters the picture. And it's, uh, it's, it's not just physical death, it's also spiritual death, which we've already seen indicated by the fact that Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes when God comes to walk in the cool of the evening. There's separation from God, from each other, and now they're going to experience death, death itself. And really, a quick summary of chapter 5, which we'll get to parts of it in a minute, but chapter 5 is all about so-and-so lived this many years and had this many descendants and died. And they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. Death has come. Is one of the big points of that whole chapter. But amazingly, in the midst of all of this, there is some good news. It's uh, often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. Uh, God says to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. Heel. The serpent will bruise the heel of this woman's descendant, which is not a fatal blow to have your heel bruised. But the woman's offspring will bruise the serpent's head, which is a fatal blow to have your head beat upon. And that day, of course, came. The woman's offspring being talked about here uh, in a very seminal fashion is, of course, Jesus. And this is the first prophetic mention of the coming of a Messiah, of a Savior, of a Deliverer to fix the mess that Adam and Eve have made. This will be the second Adam. And it comes in response to the first sin, which is quite remarkable. I mean, why didn't God just end it all, punish Adam and Eve, and just call it quits? Well, the answer is something I've already mentioned, which is amazing grace. It's, it's amazing, the grace of God. We'll see more of it. Now, one other thing about God's response. Look at verse 21. It says, Then the Lord God made Adam and, uh, for, for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember, Adam and Eve were running around and stitched together fig leaves. They had made coverings for themselves because they were embarrassed and feeling guilt and feeling shame. But they needed a different kind of covering, a covering that was made by God. 
A covering almost certainly understood as sacrifice. And there's lots of things written about this and around this. And there's not a lot of information given here. We just know that sacrifice shows up later on in the Pentateuch. And uh, without explanation, people have understood that sacrifices are being offered. And I suspect, I don't know, but I, I highly suspect that right here what God did is took animals, innocent animals, sacrificed them, provided coverings for Adam and Eve and says, no, this is the covering you need. It's the covering I provide. It's the covering that's symbolized in this sacrifice. The sacrifice is an atonement for your sin. And, you know, for the first time in history now, innocent blood has been shed so that human shame and guilt might be covered. And human fellowship with God might be restored on the basis of promise, on a sacrifice that is coming. You see, God is setting the stage for something much bigger. Now, chapter 4 begins. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's what really Cain's name actually means. It means gotten or brought forth or acquired. I've acquired a man with the help of the Lord. Eve is saying, with God's help, we're having a baby. And I'm guessing that they were thinking very likely, this is the one. This just might be the one. This will be the one who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Will he be our deliverer? I suspect they hoped and thought it would be. And every time they looked at Cain, they were reminded of God's grace because of his name. The acquired one. The gotten one. And I'm guessing they thought this is, this is it. And then Abel comes along and Abel's a rancher or a shepherd and Cain, of course, a farmer. And we read in verse 2. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The countenance of his face fell. So they offer sacrifices to God and God looks with favor on Abel's, but not on Cain's. And people wonder why, well, what exactly did, did Cain do here or not do? And the truth is we don't know for sure, but we have some pretty good hints in verse four because of the qualifiers. The qualifiers here are what indicate the difference. You see, it says that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Uh, there's a principle in scripture that we'll run across before long called the firstborn, that the firstborn belongs to God. It's the law of first fruits. And it's the idea that uh, the, from the very first uh, crop that you reap or the very first cattle that uh, happened to be born. And so as you start adding to your, uh, your herds or what have you, uh, the very first prophets that happen to appear, you give that to God, back to God as an act of worship. That's the idea here. Uh, it's saying, thank you, God. It's, it's an act of trust. It's an acknowledgement of, of who gives you the good things that you have. And, uh, and it's also trust in believing that he'll continue to provide because you've just given him something that's important to you. And it's a, a way of recognizing that every good gift that you have is actually given to you from the hand of God. And that's, that's what Abel does here. And that's what many of us do from the provisions that God gives us. In the same spirit, in the same manner, we give God our tithes, our offerings, a first 
10% right off the top. And before we do anything else with our money or spend it on things I want or things I want to do, I recognize the provision of God in this manner. And we thank him for his provision. Now, a second phrase to notice here is that Abel gives fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. You see, in our day, fat kind of has negative connotations. You know, lean is kind of better. <laughs> but in that day, fat meant life. Uh, you, needed, you needed life. And for some people, it wasn't even often that they got their hands on some meat to eat. But when they did, the fat portions would give them the greatest, the richest nourishment. Fat portions meant life. It meant flavor. It meant abundance. And so understand, fat portions were the most desirable part of a sacrifice. In other words, Abel chose to give his very best, what was most precious, what was most prized. He gave that to God. He did not give God just leftovers or just ordinary, ordinary things. Now, by contrast, Cain's offering appears to be ordinary because there are no special qualifiers here. He didn't give of the first fruits. It says, it says about Cain's offering that he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. No first fruits, not the choicest vegetables, perhaps. Long story short, God sees this and says that it is not right. That's the pronouncement God made. It is not right. Cain does not do well. And so God says, if you do well, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So while it's hard to be dogmatic about what Cain did or didn't do, we know he did not do right. He did not do well. Now, what's surprising to me most here is God's response again, you know, he doesn't reject Cain. He doesn't get mad at Cain and, you know, tell him to get lost. <laughs> Fact of the matter is God pursues Cain because God sees when a heart is devoted to him or just kind of going through the motions. And so Cain could, you see, at this point, do a heart check, recognize his own depravity and, and repent of his sin. And that could have been an experience between Cain and God that brought them closer together. But that's, as you know, not what Cain does. Instead, he broods and he resents his brother Abel. Verse six says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, there's that same word, uh, Eve's desire for Adam. Its desire, sin's desire is to have you or sin's desire is contrary to you, not in your best interest, but you must rule over it, he tells Cain. Now notice again, God uh, is always asking questions. Uh, where are you, he asks uh, Adam. Uh, he asked them if they have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a pattern with God. We're going to see this again and again and again as we encounter him encountering his people. He's a, a question asker. It's almost like he plays the counselor. He's inviting Cain to come into the light to acknowledge his sin and to make this mess right. There's, a, there's this warning. He says sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. But Cain prefers darkness. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, we read. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Are you beginning to feel the pattern that I described earlier on? A pattern of a downward spiral. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. And so now murder enters the world. God comes and asks another question. Where is Abel your brother? There he is, the counselor again. And God is inviting Cain. Come clean, confess. But now to ingratitude and to anger and to murder, Cain now adds deceit. Sin is that way. Think about it. Think about sin in your life. Once you start sinning, in general, it requires more and more and more sin to keep it covered up. And so Cain says, I don't know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, actually, Cain, yes, you are. You're supposed to love your brother. But he lies, lies to God. He will not come clean and God pronounces judgment. Same pattern that we've seen already several times. God pronounces judgment. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. What he's telling Cain is you will be driven from community because you are destroying community. You will be a wanderer. But God, again, offers, it's sort of a severe mercy here. Uh, Cain complains that, that everyone who finds him or sees him will want to destroy him, want to kill him. And so God places a mark on Cain. And we're not told at all what this mark is, but it turns out it's a mark of divine protection in effect. It's the pronouncement that Cain's life is not to be taken. And so now, like chapter three, this story in chapter four is a story of sin. Sin is becoming more and more prevalent and more and more apparent in man and on earth. And the result is, in Genesis 4.16, a very sad, sad concluding statement. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain's descendants, in fact, do exactly the same thing. They go away from the presence of the Lord. Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, introduces polygamy to the human race, which was a direct violation of Genesis 2.24. You know, a man, uh, the two shall become one flesh. A man shall leave his mother, father, his family, and uh, be joined to his wife, and they become a new family, but the two become one flesh. Now Lamech has taken to himself multiple wives. He also boasts about murder, Uh, getting revenge. So what we see happening in the latter verses of chapter four and all through chapter five is the development really of two groups of people, two groups of people on earth. One group calls upon the name of the Lord. That's Seth and the line that descends from Seth. They call upon the name of the Lord. And then there's Enoch in chapter five, verse 24. This is a group of people, one group of people calling on the name of the Lord, walking with God, if you will. There's another group of people, though, that goes away from the presence of the Lord. And there's this division that happens. It sets us up to understand chapter six and the stories that follow. But what I want us to see and appreciate this morning is just this. God's remarkable response to our sin. 
consistently he judges sin, there are consequences. You cannot sin and not have consequences. There are serious consequences. A rupture in the relationship with God is the most serious consequence. A, a rupture in our relationships, that, that too. Uh, all kinds of disruption and, and evil happening on the face of the earth. There are consequences to sin. And one of those consequences is the very judgment of God itself. Um, but I want us also to see that it's not just judgment that God offers in these awful circumstances. He also offers a path of repentance and he continues to work to create community, a people for himself. It's exactly what God is doing today. In fact, even today, there are two groups of people. One group calls upon the name of the Lord, identifies sin in our own lives and in the things that we do or don't do, repents of sin and joins God's community. There's another group of people that denies God even exists and goes away, in other words, from the presence of the Lord and suffers the consequences, which is that downward spiral into darker and darker places of sin. And the challenge to us is obvious, I think, I hope. Which group of people do we choose to be a part of? In which group of people do we choose to live? And we must decide um, what we will do with the sin in us. You see, we either bring it into the light and we repent of it or we hide our sin. And in effect, what we're doing when we do that is we run from God. We, we live a life away from the presence of the Lord. What we do with sin is the great divider. Uh, one of the great purposes of the church is to be a demonstration of the, what, what's the right thing to do with your sin, right? You see, what we do with sin, uh, if we hide it, if we ignore it, if we deny it, it divides us from God, from his truth, from his love, his forgiveness, from his purpose, from God's community. It even, of course, divides us from each other. But if we acknowledge our sin, own it, repent of it, and confess it to God, God remarkably meets us with grace. And one of the things the church is supposed to be to a watching world is that community that learns and knows what to do with its own brokenness, its own sin, and then revels in the grace with which God meets us, which is, of course, the grace of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to live, to die, to conquer death, to pay for our sin so that we can live in community with him. So, question, what do you do with your sin? I'll tell you what the serpent wants us to do. Well, first of all, the serpent wants us to sin. <laughs> he rejoices when he sees us sinning and because we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting those around us. And then the serpent wants us to run and hide from God. That's what he wants. And the truth is, that is what we're tempted to do because of the brokenness in us. Because we question the goodness of God. We question God's intent for us. But remember, friends, God's intent for us is to be in community with him. Intimate community with him. And so we don't want to be a community that glosses over or covers up or denies or blames others for our sin. And quite frankly, 
That's what this table challenges us not to do. You see, to come to this table, you got to own your sin, right? To come to this table and to appreciate what is depicted on this table, we, we have got to own our own brokenness, our, even our, our attempts to hide it and just open up and say, God, this is who I am. This is where I fail. This is how I need you and where I need you to work in my life. Now, what I want to do, normally earlier in our service, we have a time of confession of sin, but we're going to take that and put it now. I want to give us a time to reflect in silence together on the things that we're doing that displease God or hurt each other or dishonor him, a coldness of heart, maybe ingratitude or indifference to the things of God, outright disobedience. Maybe it's a matter of priorities, not making God or Jesus, his church, his people, the priority they should be in your life. Maybe for you, it's just honoring him with the stuff that he's given you. Maybe it's not loving your neighbor. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? We're, we're quite creative when it comes to sin. But if God is speaking to you about some area of your life where maybe you've been running and you want to stop running and you want to acknowledge it and own it and confess it to him, let, let's do that right now in a time of silence and in preparation to come to the Lord's table together. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for these early chapters of the book of Genesis, which take us from the place of creation where you made all things good to the place of degradation where Adam and Eve, our forefathers and mothers, brought sin into the world and therefore sin to us. And we just acknowledge before you this morning, God, that we are like them. We, we want to hide our sin. We want to run from you. We, we tend to want to believe that you do not have our best interests at heart. Forgive us. And as we have confessed our sin to you this morning, God, we we do so in the light of your son, Jesus Christ, in light of his life and death and conquering of death at the cross, at the tomb. And we do so in gratitude, God. The marvel in the stories that we've already looked at in the book of beginnings is the way you continue to pursue people to make for yourself a community, a community that would love you and serve you and follow you and a community that you can love. For this, we give thanks. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for forgiving our sins. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.